My name's Scott. I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me in the back? One night, a friend of mine was uh, uh, at an AA meeting, and a guy in the back of the room said, I can't hear the speaker, and a guy up front said, I can. Let's switch seats. So, uh, I don't know. can be a mixed blessing. I, uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for having me. Uh, to your wonderful conference, I'm being treated just absolutely remarkably. Your hospitality is just tremendous. Uh, you, I've been treated just remarkably well, and uh, I've, it's just so great to be in the middle of a conference with this much enthusiasm and this much warmth. It just was great from the moment I walked in. I, I want to I want to just tell you how much I appreciate it. Sometimes I can go to these events; it's sort of like being with the Frozen Chosen, and uh, I. Uh, you know, people are having a stand sober, sober, marching down a gray tunnel, you know, and once a year a cake comes down from a trap door, and they blow it out, keep marching, you know, and go to meetings, sit in a little gray room with a light bulb, one little bare light bulb swinging all over there, and uh, I'm, I'm not attracted to that. Call me in that, I don't know why, but uh, I don't, I like this. I like this. I like being at home with a bunch of alcoholics. And uh, if you're new, I'd like to welcome you to AA and tell you that I have a great life today. If you're new, I'm sure that just thrills the crap out of you. I'm, uh, uh, I'm sure you're overwhelmed <laughs> with joy for me. And uh, I know that because I was so happy for the people having a good time when I got here. I just was beside myself for them. And um, I'd, I'd listen... <laughs> <laughs> I'd listen to people talk about their new house and the family and the car, and I'd sit in my seat and I'd think, you know, maybe you'll go home tonight, and maybe your house will blow up. <laughs> maybe you'll blow up, and your new car and your new family and your new job, and then we'll see how spiritual you are next week. <laughs> and people would just come up to me, you know... You know, those people, those the unsolicited AA people, you know, when you're new, they've got so much teeth, it's like, you know, it's almost like a, it's like an ivory poacher should be following them. I mean, it's just like, it's unbelievable, you know, and, and I, and you see, the kind of bully I am is I'm a nice guy. I'm a sterling human being. That's how I've always tried to get people to do what I want them to do, at least out of the gate, you know. So I would listen and grin and nod and just pray that their face would burst into flame, that they would just go up in a column of smoke, you know, because I was so happy to be in AA. So if you're new, I'd like to welcome you. Um, if you're a drug addict, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're a, a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, I'd like to welcome you to AA. And um, I, I, I heard a guy identify a while ago as a crack monster. Ooh, ooh, that's scary. Crack. Does keyboard have like a Halloween costume for crack monster? It's a, and I'm very excited about a new group of people. I'd like to welcome any tweakers who are here tonight. I'd like to... Uh, I'm very excited about these people. They stay fast. They stay real quick for a while. Every part of their face is moving in a different direction. And um, and uh, I'm not making fun of you. I'm coming pretty close, but I'm not making fun of you. And, I'm, and I, <laughs> I'll tell you why I'm not. Because I did not have alcoholism when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I caught alcoholism in AA meetings. 
I did not have it when I got here, you know. I could not possibly have been alcoholic. Number one, I'm Jewish and Jews don't drink. Because it might dull the pain. And, uh, you know, you don't want to squander any agony opportunity that presents itself. And the, the funny thing is, is the, one of the first guys that saved my life in Alcoholics Anonymous was this guy at my first home group, this guy, I was a couple of weeks over, this guy raised his hand, he said, I'm an ex-Catholic, which means that I don't believe in God, and I'm therefore positive God is going to come kill my ass for feeling that way. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to go sit with him, because I had been introduced to an Old Testament God that I would not be caught in a dark alley with. This guy got you, he got you, got you, got you, no matter what. He turned your wife to salt and killed your goat and put a finger in your eye, and he got your ass no matter what. And um, <laughs> and I wanted no part of him. I wanted no part of it. You had to speak a foreign language to talk to him. And I, uh, um, I wanted <laughs> absolutely no part of it. But it's one of the many reasons I was not alcoholic when I came to AA. Uh, another reason was I had been in psychotherapy for 18 years by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm not putting therapy down. Therapy's great stuff. It says on page 133 of our book, if you need a doctor, go get one. I got no beef with therapy. My colossal blunder is I was trying to treat my alcoholism with psychotherapy, which is like showing up at a gunfight with a knife once a week. <laughs> And just getting these colossal ass poundings. Just a absolutely just uh, uh, just getting killed. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand alcoholism. I didn't understand that the dimension that plucks me out and away from being helped by physicians, by medical people, even by clergy, is this uh, cancer of the soul, this, this spiritual tapeworm that ate me up from the inside and left me hollow and insane and alone. I didn't even know I had it. I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. Anybody from the Bronx? No one? Yeah? Witness Protection Program? Are you? <laughs> I like when I'm talking to Montana and Vito's there. I love that. Yeah, I love the prairie. It's beautiful. I've been here my whole life. <laughs> and I grew up, uh, I was brought up in a completely insane family. My wife never believed me about him until she met him. And uh, my mom threw an engagement party for us. And my Aunt Rose came and wore her wig backwards, and it had a bun on it. So the bun was out front. And uh, they're psycho, absolutely psycho. Uh, uh, if you got anything for free in my family, and then it was stolen. And my uncle was a welder, and he used to get free bales of steel wool. Like, like they gave him his paycheck and said, here's a paycheck, here's a complimentary bale of steel wool. They just stole everything, you know. And uh, his, his wife took a decorating course and made throw pillows and filled all the throw pillows with the free steel wool because it was plentiful and, of course, free. So that stuff works its way through on you. So it, it, after a while, so when you go to their house, if you look at the room, everybody was moving a little bit. You know, the whole room was like a, a pulsing, breathing, living uh, organism. Um, I, I had a, uh, I had an uncle named Izzy Redman was one of the top ten welterweights of the world during the 1930s. Great fighter. Was fighting in Atlanta, Georgia, and was concerned about anti-Semitism. So he had his name changed from 
Izzy Wegman to Izzy Goldberg so that no one would know he was Jewish. And I wish I was lying about this. I wish I was. You don't go to the bar and brag about this crap. You don't go to the bar and go, hey, I'm a moron. I'm from a long line of morons. You can stare at me and watch my DNA unravel. We're idiots. <laughs> and there was chronic institutionalization, suicide attempts, mental and physical abuse. There were just a bag of nuts, and they still are. And they didn't have one single solitary thing to do with making me an alcoholic. And if you're new here, that might be really confusing, because you might come from a horrible place. And I'm not telling you for one single solitary moment that you don't. I'm not telling you that a lot of bad stuff didn't happen to you. But, you see, if my family had made me an alcoholic, the therapy would have worked, because I did good work in therapy. I could have worked out my family problems, my family issues, and I, I wouldn't have had a drink. I wouldn't have to go to parties anymore and say, oh, no, no heroin for me, I'll have a Perrier. Right? I wouldn't have to do that <laughs> if I could just be like the normal people. <clears throat> Yikes! And uh, that was very confusing to me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Really, really confusing. But uh, if, you know, and the thing about those issues, you know, which was also very confusing to me because I had so many issues. If you're new here, you've you got to not drink. The not drinking part's a moose. If it was not for the not drinking part, we'd be a much bigger organization. I guarantee it. <laughs> Our ranks would swell if it wasn't for this Galdorn not drinking thing. Um, if you don't drink, you'll have an issue and a boundary. I guarantee you. But you got to not drink. Then you'll have issues and boundaries galore. But it's the not drinking thing. So um, I, uh, I grew up in the Bronx with this insane family. I was put in therapy really young because I started drinking really young. I tried to get into a gang. I was not allowed into the gang. I went and uh, joined the hippies because they had no exam at all. Uh, there were no papers to fill out. <laughs> My application was accepted the first time that I uh, submitted it, and um, I didn't want to be an alcoholic, and I, I overcame my alcohol uh, problem with marijuana. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome all the pot smokers here tonight. You, you remember WOW, right? WOW. <laughs> WOW. And right after WOW usually came... What? What? Wow, what, wow, what, wow, what, wow, wow, what, wow. Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on linoleum. There's, there's like a lot of activity, but no movement. They, they, they cannot get a claw in the rug. They can't get their thing moving forward. I triumphed over uh, marijuana with pills. I, uh, I, I was victorious over pills with cocaine. Uh, cocaine is an extremely good drug. It's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, I kicked that gall darn cocaine uh, with heroin. Heroin's a very dark, complicated, artistic drug. Then you cross the line and become a vomiting pig. It's just a little hop, skip, and a jump. And then I drank till I didn't want to be a drunk. And I don't mean to offend anybody here by talking about drugs. I believe in the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been asked to come and tell my story. It's part of my story. If it really annoys you, please tell the committee, don't tell me. <laughs> I did not call them and ask them to come here and talk. I love you. I love being here. But if it really upsets you, I want to tell you, number one, I don't mean to do that. I really don't. 
That is not my, I didn't say, geez, let me go to Lexington, see if I can piss off a bunch of drunks. I, I, I came here because I find it very hard to drink before, during, and after a talk. I, any, any, any talk I don't drink immediately afterwards is a total success as far as I'm concerned. But I, I really, I know that this, that, that, it, that it bothers some people and that's not my intention, uh, in, in any way. Um, uh, the, the truth is, is that um, I almost uh, died from alcoholism because I couldn't stop being a drug addict, you know. And um, and I drank till I don't want to be a drunk. And alcohol was on the table every day. I uh, I was uh, I had a lot of dreams when I was a kid growing up in New York City. And I, I've suffered from chronic success my whole life. I, I uh, by the <laughs> by the time I got sober, I had uh, acted in a Broadway show and, and had a book on the bestseller list. I had directed a TV show and a movie. I had my own theater in New York. I had done all of these things a time. I, I never got to do any of them more than once because they'd moved the business when I left, and so I couldn't find them again. And um, and I realized after I took the alcoholic test, I believe there's a test for alcoholism here. I, I think it's an inventory, and uh, for me it was an inventory. And if you take it, you'll pass it. I guarantee you. And uh, if you really do it, if you really take the test, you'll wind up actually with a picture of your alcoholism. That's what I wound up with. When I sat down and read the whole thing, did the whole thing, I'm resentful at them. I'm resentful at me for resenting them. I'm resentful at them for watching me resent them. <laughs> and I've had sex with all of them. Right? <laughs> And, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm scared of all of them. I'm terrified of all of them. What does this have to do with alcoholism, if you're new? It is alcoholism. It's actually the spiritual, the soul sickness that will make it impossible for most alcoholics or many alcoholics to be treated by conventional methods. And this was imbued within me. This started in me the minute that I started rearranging my life to accommodate the walk to the drink. The, the minute that I started rearranging my life to accommodate the strange mental twist. You know, and sometimes a newcomer will say to me, geez, drinking is the furthest thing from my mind. To which I usually say, no, your mind is the furthest thing from your mind. Because, you see, we don't care if it's if it's close or far from your mind. The book doesn't say, you'll see it. It'll be a little tiny drink on the horizon. The next day, it'll be a little bigger. Incoming, incoming. The next day, it'll be big, 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 big. And then you'll drink. No, it doesn't say that. It says, boom, you put whiskey in your milk. Boom. Boom. You cross the threshold of the hotel and you say, geez, a couple of cocktails would go swell with dinner. That's what it says. It says, boom, you see the picture, your mouth floods with saliva, the wind spins, your eyes go back in your head, and you go to Baltimore for a pack of cigarettes. Boom. <laughs> boom. You get married. <laughs> so we don't care if you're thinking about it or not. The, our problem is, is we drink when we don't think about it. Our problem is, is we drink when we, it would be most advantageous to us to not drink. So, um, I, uh, I was in my early 20s and I slammed some dope. I was using hypodermics at that particular time and I was taken to the hospital. My father had a massive stroke and I couldn't show up for my old man the night he died. I was in the Bronx hitchhiking down to Manhattan. My aunt and uncle pulled up on the highway, put me in the car, said, your dad's sick, he's in the hospital. I didn't know. They brought me there and my soul petered away a little bit that night as the life drained out of him and I couldn't even go in and give him a kiss and give him a touch and give him a hug and say goodbye. I couldn't even 
it absorbed the sound of the heart monitor because it just bounced off the curtain. And I died a lot that night. And the ice around my heart got thick that night. And I had to scramble. I had to come up with something. I had to come up with some way to not be the guy who couldn't show up the night that his old man died. And I knew how to do it. Didn't take me long to figure it out. All I had to do was never put a needle in my arm again and never take heroin again, and I wouldn't be that guy. I wouldn't be that guy. That's that's how I had to lay it off. But still, my pay, I paid the price. My father was lost to me. I couldn't talk about him. I couldn't look at pictures of him. Even hearing the sound of a heart meter sounded like a personal indictment of my collapse as a son and a man. I never felt like a grown man, ever, anyway. Shortly after this, I reached one of my dreams in my life. I was acting in a Broadway play, and a new usherette with long brown hair walked into this theater. I took one look at her. I didn't even say hello to her. I walked back into the dressing room. I stood up on a chair, and I announced to the male members of this cast, I said, if anyone talks to the new usherette with long brown hair, I'll break all the bones in your hands and feet. And this June, if we stick around together, we'll be married 25 years. Uh, so, uh, I fell in love with her from the minute that I met her. The minute that I saw her, I hadn't even met her. And, um, and we, uh, we had a great time. You know, we just had a great time. We were in our early 20s, living in New York. I was acting on Broadway, and we didn't know that we were a couple of dogs trying to run on linoleum, pretty much. But, man, we had a great time. And sometimes, there's a, a portion of the book that gets misquoted a lot for me. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say, my worst day here is better than my best day out there. No. 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 <laughs> no. It, the, the book says, I wouldn't trade my worst day in here for my best day out there because I wouldn't trade this way of life. Because I had, I had really good times out there. Much better, much more fun than my worst day in Alcoholics Anonymous. No question about it. So it's important for me to know that. Really important for me to know that. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade this way of life for anything. I will not take a nickel today when I have a quarter tomorrow. I won't do it anymore. I won't live like a loser anymore. You know? Um, about a year and a half ago, I, had, I needed uh, some surgery on my hand. And the doctor said, you know, he was talking about the surgery. He said, you know, Mr. Redmond, you're going to need a general anesthetic. Uh, I was 14 years sober at this time. And I said, general anesthetic? Oh, man, this is great. General anesthetic. <laughs> wow. Normal people don't get excited about general anesthetic. Normal person goes, oh, oh, oh man! I'll tell you why. You're asleep for general anesthetic. You are generally anesthetized, okay? But you see, I know something about general anesthetic. They hit you with it, and they say count backwards from a hundred, and you go a hundred ninety-nine. I love ninety-nine. Matter of fact, that just gave me a little buzz right now. I kind of. Enjoy it. Later in the talk, I might just drive my head into that microphone just to get that feeling back again. But I'm sure it won't feel the same as the first time that I did it. <laughs> and it sounds like some of you love 99 too. The difference is, I won't settle for 99 anymore. I used to trade my life in at, for 99 at the drop of a hat, any time of the day or night. 
You got 99, you got me. I thought I was a free man. And the fact is, is I did whatever alcoholism told me to do. I did it for exactly how long it told me to do it for, and I did it whenever it told me to do it. It owned me. It ate my lunch. It had me lock, stock, and barrel. And my idea was completely the adverse. I fancied myself an iconoclast roistering down the highway of life, throwing dead cats into the sanctuary. But I wasn't grandiose. <laughs> and um, Nancy and I started a family. We... Um, she got very, very ill from prolonged exposure to me. Um, uh, <laughs> we, we got terribly, terribly ill together. Um, one day I came home, we had these 32-ounce tumblers in the house, and I came home and popped a cork on a bottle of wine and emptied the entire bottle of wine into one of these tumblers. And I turned around, and she was looking at me, giving me the pre-Alanon rat face, this one. And I said, what? And she said, what are you doing? And I said... I'm having a glass of wine. <laughs> Can a man have a glass of wine in his own home? We became so sick that at one point a guy lent us his car and we sold his car. I, I, <laughs> I will never forget this guy's voice as long as I live. He said, you sold my car? <laughs> I lent that's like house-sitting for someone, and they come back and you're in escrow, right? <laughs> the alcoholic life becomes the only normal one. We didn't have rent money. Big duh, right? And I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I am so sick, so sick of being a punk, irresponsible kid. Let's stand there on two feet. Let's not borrow money. Let's sell the car. <laughs> and my, my wife looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, let's do. Now... I understand that today. I understand absolutely how we were able to do that. We were able to do that for the same reason that I love 99. For the same reason that I love dental surgery. Dental surgery. Oh, man. That was like the best news in the world when I was out there. Dental such an uninterrupted source of narcotics for a period of time. Normal people don't get excited about dental surgery. No, I can't. I, I defy you to produce one normal person that gets a little tingling at the announcement of dental surgery. And I'll tell you why. I leave out the middle. I go from announcement of dental surgery to painkillers. I leave out the surgery. I leave out the sutures, the, the surgery, the blood, and the pain. I go from let's do the right thing to pay the rent. I leave out grand theft auto. <laughs> I leave out forging the pink slip, looking behind me for the cops. I leave that out. If you're new here, welcome to the middle. Welcome to the middle. They're obsessed with the middle. And um, our older son, Micah, was born. And uh, he was really welcomed into the world. We were surrounded by friends and family. We got a ton of phone calls. There were a lot of flowers at the, you know, the hospital. He was really welcomed into our community. And then two years and nine months later, when our son, Jesse, was born, there was nobody at the hospital, no friends, no flowers, no phone calls. We had become completely isolated by the disease of alcoholism in just two years and nine months. And it wasn't because people didn't love us. They did. It just really hurt too much to be around us. The ice had, had become so thick around our heart, we really had repelled everybody. We, we, we pressed ourselves on the people who loved us like a thumb upon a bruise. It just was too awful to be around. And uh, Jesse got sick. He wound up in neonatal intensive care. And uh, 
I got this call from a doctor that night. This doctor said, you know, Mr. Redmond, your wife's in tremendous psychological duress. She's all alone, and the baby's sick. We need you to come down here. And I said, uh, you know what? I can't, <laughs> I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old son. I can't come down. And this doctor, who I had never met before, said to me, I'll tell you what. My husband's home. I'll give you our address and our phone number. You can take your son over to my house, and my husband will watch him so you can be with your family. This is from a doctor in L.A. who I've never met. And I said no. I said no because I had no way that I could accept this person's generosity. No way. You know, if you're new here, we desperately need to help you. Uh, and if we, you won't let us help you, we'll find somebody else to help. Because we desperately, we're, we're desperate. The people who work this program are desperate to help people. You know, Here's the deal. If you don't let us help you, you're probably not going to be willing to help anybody else. Probably. I'm not saying guaranteed. It's been my experience that as I've allowed myself to be sponsored, I'm willing to sponsor other people. The more I've allowed people into my life, let AA members move me in my family. Let AA members do whatever they are they want to do, I've been willing to do that. And I didn't have, I wasn't part of that deal. I should have been part of that deal. That's when you're supposed to be in the middle of your community when you give birth. That's when exactly when it's supposed to be. And we were absolutely alone. And it's a funny thing. Bill Wilson, in, in, in the description of his story, describes a horrifying life. He talks about uh, dragging his mattress down from an upper floor of his house because he's scared that he's going to pitch himself out of the window. He talks about opening up his medicine cabinet and staring at poison and cursing himself for not having the guts to take himself out. And then he talks about waiting for his hard-working wife to come home so that he can sneakily steal some money from her purse. He's talking about a life without integrity, without a seventh tradition, without a higher power, without being plugged into the community of people. And then he says, and this just always freezes my heart any time I read it. He says, little were we to know that this was to continue for three more years. Now, how many times have we seen people come into the program and what we think is their bottom, they don't do the work, and then they get a shovel out and start digging. Dig that new bottom. And I didn't get, I didn't feel the touch of the master's hands for three more years from that horrible day of being all alone with that baby. Uh, and, and it wasn't like I was doing my, my son Micah a favor by staying with him at home. He was trapped in the house with this sick, guilt-ridden maniac. I would have done better to take him down to the hospital and leave him in the waiting room with a, with a coloring book. At least he could have gotten away from me for a bit. That's where we wound up. When my son Micah was five, he came to me and he, uh, we were living next to a Christian family and their children talked quite a bit about God, which interested Micah because he didn't hear about that in his house. And he asked me, he said, Dad, is there anything such as God? And I looked into the eyes of my perfect, beautiful baby boy, and I said, you know what, son, there isn't. <laughs> it, it's unfathomable to me that a father would look at a baby and say, in essence, you know when it's dark at night and you're scared and you can't go to sleep? Tough, because that's all there is. That's really what I said to him. And what I did was, I thought I was giving him the real existential deal, like a five-year-old needs an existential deal. <clears throat> I thought I was giving him a chance not to be played like one of those saps and suckers out there, because I had so rearranged my life to accommodate alcoholism. You see, if you get in between me and the drink, and you're my wife, my lover, 
my dreams, my career, my child, you will vanish or you will turn to paper mache. You will either disappear or you will become something less than human because I'm going to get to the drink. And if you're my sons, you're going to vanish over and over and over. Or i got to walk around you. And it hurts so much to see i got to walk bigger and bigger circles because I just can't even look at you. And my whole life just becomes this big, circuitous bag of wind that makes a horrible sound when it gets hit by reality at any time, you know? And how much disappearing can a baby bear before the baby believes what they're being taught, which is that they don't exist? So in our alcoholic home, the children either became pointlessly aggressive to reach a goal that was never never there when they got there, or they just threw in the towel. What's the use? What's the, you, what's the use, you know? And um, our children became very, very ill. By the time I got sober, our older son, Micah, was diagnosed as being functionally retarded. He had uh, small motor skills that weren't working at all. He, he couldn't put together tasks. He could barely read or write. He was six years old. He was reading years below his grade level. He couldn't stop grinding his teeth. Um, and he, there was nothing organically wrong with him. He was just scared all the time. He was so distracted from being frightened. And what does our book say? Fear to be classed with stealing, it seems to cause more trouble. And Jesse was a wreck. He was three years old, and he was trapped in this war game he was playing in his head and pretending that he was a robot to the extent where he was so distracted he couldn't stop. And I think the conceit there for him was at least it was a, a battle of his own design. It wasn't the battle in the house that was completely out of control. And um, this is the... The condition that we came to Alcoholics Anonymous in on April 22nd, 1985. Because on April 22nd, 1985, I crossed the line that I swore I would never cross again. My careers were done. My career in show business was done. My my uh, legitimacy as a husband, my children were destroyed. My wife was a, a, a just a ranting, twitching lunatic. Uh, our family wouldn't come to see us. Nobody, you know. By this time, when someone hired me at a company, in about two weeks, they'd start blaming each other for having hired me, which I hate. That always hurt my feelings, you know. When they go, "You hired him," no, you hired him. And, um, <laughs> And what I did on April 22nd, 1985, is I crossed the line I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm. I became the guy who was there the night then couldn't show up for his old man, and my, my life just crashed down around me. And um, I called my therapist of record at that time. I told him what I had done, and he said to me that morning, you know what, there's actually nothing that can be done for you. And I said, What? What he basically said to me was the exact same thing that Carl Jung said to the man who 12-stepped the man who 12-stepped Bill Wilson. I said, what do you mean? He said, the only thing I could suggest is you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or we have you institutionalized. Now, I want to tell you something. I don't know why I went to AA that morning. I really don't. On most other mornings, I would have gladly chosen the institution. You know? Um... I love reasons to drink. They're my favorite things in the whole world. I, I have a friend named Larry who the first time that he ever read our book, he read the first page of the fourth chapter, which contains a sentence which says, facing an alcoholic death or a spiritual life is not always an easy decision to make. That's a tough choice. Die in a pool of my own urine, spiritual life. Very, very tough decision to make. And the first time he ever read that, uh, that page, he said to himself, well, how bad of an alcoholic death are we talking about here? 
that's not a normal reaction. That's not a normal reaction to that sentence. My favorite reason to drink I've ever heard uh, came from this guy a couple years ago. I was sponsoring this guy for about 15 minutes. And he uh, lived with his wife. He was a male prostitute, and he had a gay lover. And he, and, he called, and he called me to tell me that he drank. And I said, oh, why? <laughs> and he said, he did, he, without missing a beat, he said, I caught my wife cheating on me. Now, I just want to tell you something. I completely understand that. That was either, that was either the result of one or two processes. That was either an occasional hunter inspiration. Just boom. He had to come up with something, and there it was. Fully cut cloth. A gem. My wife was cheating on me. Or that was the product of weeks and weeks in the rat's maze. Weeks on the hamster wheel. Weeks of cutting and pasting reality and turning the whole universe. you got to turn the whole world and watch it drop in slot by slot. Okay, I know I live with my wife. I know I'm a male hooker. I've got a gay lover. But the bitch cheated on me. I'm out of here. you got to turn the whole world to make that right. Some days you got to turn the whole world to get to that drink. And some days it's just... It's just 12 inches. Some days it's 12 inches, and some days you got to walk, you got to travel the entire universe to move that 12 or 18 inches. And that morning, I have no idea why I went to the AA meeting and didn't make it okay to shoot dope. I don't know why I didn't turn the world. I had turned the world a million times before. But I found out where there was an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting near my home. It was a 7 a.m. meeting. I uh, put my best clothes on. I got a bad check to write you. And uh, I went to this this clubhouse in the San Fernando Valley called Unit A. And I walked into this room. I looked around. And I said to myself, oh, my God, how did I wind up in Alcoholics Anonymous? Oh, no. How did this happen? How lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to me. And the whole room looked like it was the product of a hundred years of inbreeding. It was unbelievable. They had like, you know, it was unbelievable. They were like identical twins carving their initials on each other's feet. And, and, uh, um, do I bring my own bib overalls next week? Am I issued a pair? I mean, and, and, the, and the unsolicited AA guy, he, he came up to me at the end of the meeting. You know the guy. He's got one tooth with a cavity in it. He's got a butt buckle large enough to serve a whole fish on. You know this guy, right? Do I want what you've got? No. No, no. But thanks for spitting on me. I really appreciate it. And I'm waiting for the Jew hunt to start. I know that's going to start any minute. Come on, Jaime, strap these antlers on. Knock his beanie off. I always wanted to run a big buck Jew. That'll be fun. I mean, I just hated every single thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything. And everything is a miracle. 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 I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. This furniture and coffee are miracles, too. I just, I hated it. Every part of it. And the only reason that I can imagine that I came, I kept coming back was that I was out of plans. If you're new here, I pray for you that you're out of plans. If you're new here and you have a plan, it's probably a beaut. <laughs> Don't use your plan. Grab one of us after this meeting and tell us your plan. We want to know the plan. 
my favorite newcomer plant, and it's the most single utilized newcomer plant I've seen over the years, is the one more dope deal to set myself up financially for sobriety plan. <laughs> and I kept coming back. I kept coming back and I hated it. I hated AA. And uh, my wife reached out to the Al-Anon family groups and started pursuing her miracle. She got a sponsor. We used to go over to the sponsor's house and there'd be all these people loving each other and cooking and having a great time. And I'd stand up against the wall just radioactive. You know, just so sick. I mean, and, and I just would look around and say, this is fine for them, but it's just, we're too busted up. This really isn't going to happen, you know, for us. And, and, um, I stuck around AA for six months enjoying the gift of step none. I just was, uh, just psycho, you know, and I, I knew I was going to drink. I'd seen the AA drill hundreds of times in just six months. People came in and did the work. People came in and didn't do the work, got sick, got sicker, got to the podium, shared their gift with us, and shared their ass right out of the door, or stayed here and became columns of human sewage and sexual predators, although I judged no men. And, um, because I'm too spiritually developed. And uh, so I knew I was going to drink. And, and you know, my wife says she saw it in me. I think I saw it in her. But I knew I was going to drink. And I asked the guy to sponsor me. And this was a good guy. He seemed happy all the time. And the thing that really attracted me to this guy is he didn't seem to be frightened to be an AA goody-goody. He got up and he talked about the specific things he was doing. Because that's what the book says. It says we're going to tell you exactly what we've done. And he talked about working the steps, doing inventory, doing a 10-step, working with other guys, having problems in sobriety. What a concept. Um... And I, I asked this guy to sponsor me, and he made sure I'd done some reading in the big book of AA, and he took me to his apartment for fun and for free, spent hours with me. I couldn't figure out what the hell he wanted. And uh, he read chapter 5 to me, and on the way through, he took me through the first two steps, and we reached step 3 and got on our knees and prayed, which I felt was embarrassing and unnecessary, but I did it with him anyway. And um, he did something so beautiful for me that day. I, I, uh, we got on our knees, and he opened the book to the third step prayer, and he said, let's pray now, let's make a decision. And he read the prayer out of the book. And part of my head's going, gee, shouldn't he like know this by heart already, you know? Maybe I should have gotten a guy who like does this a little more. And you know what? Of course he knew it by heart. The fact was, is he was doing something. And it took me years to realize this, that he didn't want to make himself a little better than me. He didn't want to sit there and close his eyes and say the prayer while I had to read it out of the book. He wanted to read it with me. What a beautiful thing. What a simple, beautiful thing. And I've gotten to do that for other guys. And I think inside my head, I think, maybe this guy thinks I really don't know. <laughs> I mean, it just, you know, you, you get that little thing in your head, but what a, what a beautiful little exercise that is. And um, he, sh- uh, uh, he went back and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step in the big book of AA. And uh, I... Uh, I worked on my inventory for three months. I went back to him at nine months of sobriety, and I read him my inventory. I did step six and seven for the first time, which have become sort of my centerpiece, my my working sort of template for my relationship with God. And then it came time to do my eight-step list. I try to share this anytime I talk, because it's simply the best reading of step eight that I've ever, ever heard in my life. And it happened at my own home group from this guy named Nino. I had never seen this guy Nino before. I've never seen him since. And this happened many years ago. He had never read chapter 5. He was there with a hospital group. He had a hospital plastic on his wrist. And he was reading chapter 5 for the first time. And he got up in front of this group and he read, 
made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) And he he looked out into the room as if to say, have you seen this? (laughs) Do you know what's in here, man? It was so beautiful. It was so pure. It was the purest reading of the step I've ever heard because it's the only step I saw. I saw nothing else on the list. Not those people. Not that money. No, no, no. I would not have taken that much money if I knew I had to give it back. No way. Not the car. When I called that guy to pay him back for the car, it's like he went... You're paying me back? It was like he was frozen on the phone for 16 years. He had never hung up. But <laughs> And uh, I had to do my instep list, and it was ugly. My wife and my kids and my pop had to go down there, and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Um, stuff that you hear people do in AA for, uh, you know, like I couldn't go to the grave and talk to them, and I couldn't write a letter. It didn't work for me. Got no relief. I I don't indict that behavior. Plenty of men that I sponsor do that and get a lot of relief. I didn't, which scared the crap out of me because I thought, man, there's no way out of this. I didn't know what I was going to do about Nancy and the kids. What am I going to do? Let's see. I'll sit down with Nancy and go, sorry. (laughs) Okay. Sorry about this eight-year suicide pact. I couldn't say I was sorry. I couldn't apologize to my children. I'm sorry were the two most useless words in my vocabulary. It was like a mouth of ashes. I couldn't even get the words out. And my sponsor, God bless him, I was blessed with a sponsor who gave me exactly what I needed. He refused to tell me what to do. He refused to give me tasks to do. He said, do your job. Address the inventory. You're resentful at yourself for being a piece of crap as a father. You're resentful at yourself for not giving, celebrating your kid's birthday. You're resentful at not showing up for your old man. You're resentful for being an adulterer. You're resentful. You're resentful over and over and over again. The gun goes over and over again. And what am I fighting of? I'm fighting of being with people. I'm fighting of being alone. I'm fighting of success. I'm fighting of failure. How can you live? How much more of a spiritual corner can you paint yourself in? to. And that's where I was, you know, and you guys, what you've done is you've just blown on the paint till it's dried and coaxed me out, you know, an inch at a time, a foot at a time. And uh, and that's what I started doing. I had to start doing a lot of lame crap. I had to start going to Little League games, going to flag football, coaching Little League. I went to my first Little League game. My wife comes over and takes a look. And then you know, we've spent finally spent a couple of booze bucks to buy my kids some equipment and put them in the, in the league, you know. That was the first step. And then she comes to the game, and there's all the people in the first base stands, and there's me alone in the sun, pissed off, just psycho, going up, up and down two hat sizes, you know. I'm here. I'm making amends. I'm here. I'm doing my job. I'm here. I'm here. The kids are thrilled to see me. Mr. Redmond's going to blow up, man. Look at him. Look at him. He's got a vein pumping like a garden hose on his forehead, man. <laughs> it took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number to just sit in the stands, to just be at my sobriety station, to just be with the people, you know. And um, what a relief. What a relief. My son Jesse played for a couple of years and received what I believe is really one of the great compliments a human being can receive on the planet. He was intentionally walked. (laughs) Doesn't get a whole lot better than that. If you're not a fan, that means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you. And... uh, 
And he didn't want to jump up and down and be a geek. He just, you know, got to be cool. So he just laid down his bat and trotted up the first base line. And on the way up the first base line, he looked at me at my sobriety station and just shot me just a little bit of stuff. You don't want to spoil him. It's the old man. Don't be lame, you know. And got up to first base. And I want to tell you something. I'm not telling you that my son Jesse got intentionally walked because I'm sober. I'm telling you that I was there because I'm sober. I've been, you know, I've been with men enough times who are drunk on their kid's birthday again. And I tell them about the day that my kid got walked. And I was there. You know, my children have received 15 appropriate birthday gifts on the day of their birthday that they wanted. Not once in the last 15 years have they received the day after radioactive guilt gift from the only place that would take a hot check from me. Here's some drywall, boys. Uh, all the kids are loving the drywall. It's Pokemon drywall. I don't feel guilty on my kid's birthday anymore because I've exercised the birthday muscle 15 times. You know, I, a couple of years ago I was driving to an AA function on Halloween and I looked out at that great scene. And you guys know the scene, that incredible scene where you're watching kids run through the streets with bags of candy and, the, uh, you know, their capes, you know, trailing behind them and stuff, leaves blowing around. And, and, uh, and I was overwhelmed with this feeling. And if you've been around here any appreciable amount of time and you've used our design for living, you know what I'm talking about. This incredible feeling washed over me that I, where I knew that I was really part of what was going on, where I didn't feel separated, where I didn't feel like I was watching some movie of life through that windshield. And for me, that's been great part the result of, for 15 years, spending a couple of bucks to have some Halloween candy to buy my kids, when my kids would let me buy them a costume, buy a thing, and exercise that muscle. Faith without works is dead, and works without faith are dead. It works both ways, you know. And um, our family really started making a beginning. You, you told Nancy and I to, to not get involved in our first year, and we didn't. <laughs> we stayed the hell away from each other. We were just psycho, absolutely psycho. I don't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to fight with her. I don't know how to fight. I don't know how to fight. I have no idea how to fight. After all those years of active alcoholism, you get in between me and a drink, you're done. I scream or I cry. I scream till you shut up, or I cry till you shut up. I like the tyranny of helplessness. That works fine. I also like to loom. I'm a loomer. I like to loom. I'm big. I like to loom with a light behind me so I get you in a shadow. It's like total eclipse of the Jew. I like to get, you know, really fit in there. And if I can work a scream, a cry, and a loom into one fight, that's a hat trick. I mean, that's a trifecta. It doesn't really get much better than that. So I, I, I don't know how to fight. I don't know how to talk to my wife. I don't even know how to clean my house. Why don't I feel like a grown man? Because I, I don't act like one. Can't even make my bed. Can't even make my bed. Can't even clean the house. Not for the right reason. Because somewhere in the back of my twisted noodle, I think that a certain amount of housework should equal a certain amount of sex. That's right. I think there should be like conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of housework to sex. There's <laughs> always a couple of guys when I share that, they go, well, where do you buy that stuff? <laughs> so I don't even know how to clean my house. I don't know how to be a grown man. I don't know how to have a civil argument. And and what started happening was my wife and my friends in Al-Anon started teaching me. They started, I would try to scream until the, the fight ended. And my wife would just take a breath and say, let's try it again. And our sons taught me. They taught me so beautifully. 
I, I told you how incredibly injured the boys were, you know. And I had to go into the school because they, they, were, they were in such bad shape in school and sit down with the people in school and say, you know what, my kids are, are, in, are sick because they've been living with me and we've been terribly ill. Can you help us? Yes. Yeah, let's test them. Let's see what's going on. And then we reached out. We asked for help instead of just sending them in there to take the bullet, you know. And they tested special. They got special ed. The, the, the special ed lady said, get them into music, get them into sports, because the small motor stuff they need, like, to, to work this out. So that we got them in the Little League. And then and, and Jesse wanted to play drums. So I went and, and spent a couple of booze bucks on a, a drum pad. I bought them this little drum pad. It's a little piece of wood with some rubber and, and some sticks. And... um and I went back to my home group and I told the guys what I'd done. I was really proud that I had done the right thing. And um, within two weeks, the AA drum set showed up at our house. There was like, there were a lot of burnout drummers in my home group at this time. <laughs> <laughs> guys were coming over with like these mega death drums and they're going, dude. And um, <laughs> it, Jesse, Jesse went up with this drum set that when he sat behind, he, he just disappeared. You couldn't even see him. And the AA keyboard showed up for Micah. And, and, uh, and you know what? Last year, our sons played the House of Blues in L.A. You know? And they burnt the dump down. Absolutely burnt the dump down. And they're playing in this packed house, about eight, nine hundred people. They're playing hip-hop music. There's this hip-hop crowd just flipping out while they're playing. And, and then over to the side, there's this small group of weeping middle-aged alcoholics. You know? <laughs> And the kids are going, what is with the crying old people, man? What? Well, usually they bring backup singers, but there's these crying old people over there. <laughs> and that's their AA and Alan on aunts and uncles that have been following them around for 15 years, you know. And that's just, you know, that's what's happening at my house today. I mean, today, right now. Uh, that doesn't mean that God likes me any more than people who have kids who are still suffering or sick. My kids have had plenty of problems in sobriety. They've had drug problems. They've had all sorts of problems. That's just what's happening in my in my house today. I don't buy that God likes me more or God likes them more than the people who are suffering. Um, sometimes my, my job in AA is to show a guy how to stay sober, uh, enjoying a great romance in my marriage. Sometimes my job in AA is to show a guy how to stay sober through really rough, difficult times where we're taking everything personally and not enjoying each other. Uh, sometimes my job is to show a guy how to stay sober in the house in the hills. Sometimes it's how to stay sober in a refrigerator box. I just don't, you know, uh, we got uh, nailed in the Northridge earthquake in, in uh, our area a couple of, bunch of years ago, about five, uh, six years ago. And, I mean, we got really badly injured. And um house got creamed and stuff. And shortly after that, we were at an AA function out of town. And this woman came up to me at the function, and she said to me, Oh, I'm so glad that God got us out of L.A. before the quake. So I said, oh, he likes you, but we're crap, but he likes you. And she said to me, oh, I I guess he just felt you had some lessons to learn. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I couldn't stay sober with a guy like that for ten minutes. I could not stay sober with a guy who was saying, okay, get him, get him, get the Redmond boy, get him. No evacuation plan for you, Jew boy, get him. I'm out of here, man. I couldn't stay sober for a minute and a half in that universe. I uh, I had to get a God big enough so a lot of things happened in his world and I didn't get to drink. 
in my uh, first year of sobriety, I was starting to sponsor a lot of guys, and I was sort of becoming a spiritual Goliath. And I, uh, <laughs> at the end of the year, I had this writing job for 20th Century Fox, and at the end of the year, I uh, was being considered to direct a situation comedy. And uh, I felt that if I had got this job directing the sitcom, that it really would benefit the guys I sponsor. Really. <laughs> But it'd be really good for them because they would see me succeed, which would be such a great inspiration to them in AA. So anyway, I didn't get the job and I almost drank and my brain blew up and I went to my sponsor. I was humiliated and I told him what had happened and he said, he said, oh, you have the show business God. I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, so God keeps you sober and you didn't get a show business job and you almost drank. So I guess... You have the show business, God, and he has abandoned you utterly. <laughs> now, when I came into AA, I heard people talking about God getting them into relationships, God getting people jobs, God getting people parking spaces. I said, oh, no, not the parking space, God, not the parking space, God. What if you don't get a space? And if you have a parking space, God, and he gives you a space, why not pass it on? No. Um, <laughs> Silly idea. So I had to sit down and I had to write. I'm as if I, you know, and he, I had to take a look at it. I'm as if with Scott for almost drinking. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook ambition, personal relations, and sex. And then I had to sit down and write the defects of character that if God would remove the resentment, would be gone. I was resentful at the company that didn't give me the job. I was resentful at myself for almost drinking. And my sponsor said, you know what, when you do six and seven today, you better have a real serious talk with your higher power about what you're going to have to do to stay sober. Six and seven. Humbly ask him to remove my shortcomings. Humbly isn't take him if you can, big guy. <laughs> Humbly isn't take him, you rotten. Humbly is, Pop, I can't bear this anymore. Can you please help me? The last sentence of chapter 4, when I drew close to him, he revealed himself to me. This is how I drew, draw close to him. Please, please, take this. Please do my work. I'll do your work. And I said, that morning I said, I will do anything for a living. You want your business? You got it. Because otherwise I'm just saying, Father, I'm yours. And he says, yeah, I'm God. I knew that. It's a very nice gesture. Thank you. But I knew that already. But when I say, take this, take this self-centeredness, take this grandiosity, take this fear of financial insecurity, I get, I really get into a relationship. I really get into uh, a proactive relationship with my higher power. And I said, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll do anything for a living. Just keep me sober. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I looked up to God and I said, I did not mean this. <laughs> We've had a grotesque misunderstanding. I, I, did not, I did not mean this. Now, in L.A., when they make a TV show or a movie, they hire a caterer. The caterer follows you around on a truck and makes uh, food for the company, and you make a lot of dough. It's Teamster dough. You're on a vehicle on a movie set. It's a great job, but I'm Scott Redman. <laughs> the first movie that I cater, the executive producer and, and star of the movie is a guy who I've worked with in the business. And he walks in up and sticks his head on the truck that first morning. And he says, can I have a burrito, <laughs> Scott? <laughs> and I turn around and said, what's happening, babe? And he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> <laughs> I went home and I called my sponsor and I said, yeah, we're really getting the gift now, man. I'll tell you. 
it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> he said, it sounds like you've got a resentment. How do they come up with this stuff, you know? A resentment. A resentment. I'm re-experiencing this hatred. I hate this guy. Why? I don't know. He wasn't mean to me. And I hate, hate myself for working on this kitchen truck. Now, I don't, I don't just dislike it. I don't dislike, I resent, okay? I resent with a hatred, with a hot hatred that I wake up every morning and water it like a little flower. I care for it. I, if, if I, if I hate something, and if I realize that I forget to hate it for a while, I'm annoyed and shocked. And I have to redouble and remind myself to keep hating this thing and try to redouble my hatred efforts to make up for the lost hatred time. I hate it in a way that eats my brain and my heart and turns my life black and throws me into the gutter. It is the great destroyer of all alcoholics, the source of all spiritual illness. But no big deal. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to die. It's going to kill me. I re-experience this hatred in a way where when my head hits the pillow, it turns into a rotisserie. I'm just completely lost at the hands of this thing. So I sat down and I wrote, I'm resentful of Scott for working on a kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. A five-bagger for sure. <laughs> now, what are the defects? What is it in me? What am I going to ask God to remove? The truck? The burrito? The guy? What am I asking God to take away? Blue skies. This thing's going to kill me. God's got a magic wand and he touches me on the head. What is it in me that if it was gone right now, this resentment would be gone? I'm ashamed. I'm ungrateful. I'm, I'm new in AA and I'm making dough. I'm working. I'm making dough. I'm ungrateful. I'm a mind reader, I think. Everybody there, and we as a, as a class of people are probably the most pathetic mind readers who ever lived. <laughs> but it hasn't stopped me yet. Um, <laughs> man, because I think that, you know, what everybody's thinking there of me. I'm impatient. Things aren't moving along. I'm uh, playing God. Things aren't going according to the Scott Redmond program, a fabulous program. And you know what? Another one for me which is huge is I'm unwilling to accept the fact that I'm another child of God who's spiritually sick. I won't give myself the credit for that. I won't show myself the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And I had to write about it. And I had to read it to my sponsor. And I had to work that 10 step until... Because I wound up I wound up serving people who had been my assistant directors on shows I had directed. I, I wound up uh, serving actors who I had directed in shows. I wound up serving a lot of people food. And I would come back to my home group every week with a new tale of humiliation, and the guys would go, <laughs> you know, just tears streaming down their face. And I got to help some people who felt that they had uh, fallen from a height when they came into AA. I had this one friend named Paul who felt that he had fallen from a height. He hadn't reached the top rank in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is Child of God. And once you reach Child of God, there's no head drunk here. Once you reach Child of God, there's no place to fall from or to. And um, he used to say this prayer. He'd say, Father, I'm willing to do anything for a living. Just keep me sober, but don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. <laughs> I was so glad it helped him out, you know. <laughs> and I got to show up and give him a dime for their nickel and be a good cook. And the and, uh, funny thing is, is my sons were more excited about me being a cook than they ever were about me being a writer or a director. They asked me to teach them how to cook. And we go to the market and pick out what was good and fresh, and we learned how to do that together. It was a blessing. And uh, I did it. Uh, I cooked for two or three years, and, and uh, 
and really got okay with it. And um, and then I was offered a, uh, a to, not a job, but a, a, this this public relations company in, in New York called Ketchum Public Relations made an overture to me uh, for this comedy writing job. And I thought at this point, you know, at this point, if I got that job, just think of how this would benefit the guys I sponsor. <laughs> Because, because they'd see, right? I'd suffered, but now I would bet, I, I would grow thusly. Anytime I use thusly in a sentence, I'm doomed. I know that. I'm, I'm going biblical and I'm doomed. And, um, and I did a videotape for these guys. They made a videotape. And my, of course, my brain blew up before I even heard about the thing. My brain exploded. I did a Yosemite Sam and I, I went to my sponsor. I wrote about it. I, I prayed about it. I got free. A couple of weeks after that, I got a call from Ketchum that I, in fact, did not get the job and I was already okay with it. And then I got a call from my catering company to go up in the mountains above LA to cater some commercials up there, some TV commercials. So I got in the truck and I got up there and they gave me the call sheet, which is the sheet of paper that gives you all the information about the job. And I saw that the commercials were for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. <laughs> now I'm feeding them. I look down at the end of the truck and there's a guy videotaping me. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. <laughs> He's going to tape me cooking and go back to New York and show it to him. And they're going to go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf there? Oh my God, that poor son of a bitch. I go home and I call my sponsor. <laughs> and I said, we're getting a gift now. We're really, really, it's a miracle. This is really, really a miracle. <laughs> and he said to me, you know, I guess God had enough writers today and he needed a few cooks. And then he said, you know, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. I was a couple of years sober and a guy that I sponsored got AIDS and we didn't know much about it at that time and uh, people said that you can get it if you get someone's sweat on you. I mean, people just didn't know much about the disease and I acted like the guy's sponsor. I went to the hospital and I got to hold him and kiss him and I'd get scared because his sweat would get off on me and I'd have to wash, I'd wash my face and I'd just prayed through it and... Um, and uh, I got to be there for him and just love him to pieces. And uh, and then what started happening for me is I realized that my father was coming back into my life. It didn't happen like a switch going off or a burning bush. I just stopped being scared to talk about him. I, I put a picture of him up in our house. I started telling his grandson stories about him. You know, and every time that I've been in a hospital with a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, every time that I've done that thing. I feel his presence. I feel, I just feel so relieved and so full of love for my dad and so forgiven. You know, I used to say the Lord's Prayer all the time and, and refuse to forgive people. I used to say the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was still holding grudges against people and angry at them, and I was not forgiving them. I was doing everything except forgiving them, and then I had the unmitigated gall to continue to parrot these words to ask God to do something for me that I was not doing for other people. 
and I had a sponsor who really started, as, as resentments would come up again and again about the same stuff, he'd say, how can we make your life bigger? How can we make your relationship with your higher power bigger? I, how can you start being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and transfer that to being a member of the world and really let the ice fall away from your heart and be the example to your children that you want to and let them be an example to you? I was a couple of years sober. You know, my, my son, Micah, came to me. I, I, I sponsored a guy named Roland in my first year of sobriety. And Roland used to call our house every night, and he'd leave a message on my answering machine, and he'd say, Scott, it's Roly. I love you. I'm sober. Good night. He'd hang up. When I was six years sober, my son, Micah, came to me, and he said, you know, Dad, when I was a little boy, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the machine. And when I did, I could go to bed. And this is the kid I told there was no God to. And he would stay up till he passed out because he was so terrified. But he knew one thing. He knew that Roland would not call me if I was drunk. He knew that. That was the demonstration of the power of God in his life. You know, and he's had plenty of problems. He graduated high school. This was not a problem. It was a problem for me. He graduated college and instead of graduated high school and instead of going to college, decided to go to Chiapas, Mexico and work with these Zapatista revolutionaries. Now, like his politics or not, he went and did it. I, I smoked a lot of dope and didn't get out of the kitchen. But I, you know, <laughs> but I talked a lot of long crap, you know. And again, like his politics or not, he put himself in harm's way to stand up for what he believed. And I got, you know, the Mexican military didn't want him down there. And the Mexican military is depicted as such a warm, loving group of people <laughs> that I would have these pictures in my head I couldn't get out of my head. And my sponsor said, you know what? Maybe you need to turn the Mexican military over to your higher power. I don't think you're going to be able to handle it. And he'd say, take the third step. And I'd say, Pop, please, please take the Mexican military. Please do it. And I'd get that relief. In some mornings, I would just get beat to crap because this bad Oliver Stone film wouldn't stop going through my head. And I called my sponsor one morning. I was weeping. I said, I can't take it. And he said to me, the thing that we're told to do in the big book of AA over and over again, it says, don't fight with the drunk. Don't. When the drunk says, I feel this way, don't say, you don't feel that way. Don't. Don't fight with him. When the clergy comes to AA, and this is my one of my favorite things in the 12 of 12, in the description of step two, you're not supposed to say you don't know God. Do you know God? You're supposed to say, what does it say in the book? You know the Bible. You know God. You, you minister God. You know the Bible chapter and verse, but you have not found a way to apply this form of moral psychology in a way that can interrupt this cycle of spree and remorse, and we know how to do that. We know how to do that. That's what we do. We will take you from the cycle of spree and remorse to the cycle of surrender and commitment, where each little commitment makes a larger surrender available. Each larger surrender makes a bigger commitment available, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you have this big, robust landscape that you get to offer up your relationship to God in. It's a design for living that is extraordinary. This is the only treatment from recovery of recovery from a fatal illness that leaves the sufferer in better condition than they were in before they got the disease. It's absolutely remarkable. If you're new here, we've gone from two to two million in 65 years. We're in 150 countries. We have 128,000 groups, but I'm sure this isn't going to work for you. <laughs> And um, my sponsor said to me that morning, he didn't fight with me. He didn't say, don't be scared. He said to me, you know what? This could be the greatest thing he ever does. And I said to myself, 
kiss my ass. That's it. <laughs> Easy for you to say, not your kid. And you know what? It's the greatest. I don't know if it's the greatest thing he'll ever do, but it's the greatest thing he's done so far. He came back from Chiapas, a, a man, fully cut cloth, you know, and uh, has gone on to college and is a, as a result of being in Chiapas, has been published in Spanish and is, is uh, experiencing uh, tremendous um, prosperity and success. Our younger son, Jesse, is a, a student at the University of Chicago. When we were, uh, my wife and Nancy and I were here in Lexington uh, talking at the Al-Anon State Convention some years ago, and she said at the time, she said, geez, I hope Michael goes to school here so I can ask 2,200 Al-Anons to look in on him. Uh, <laughs> And um, my wife and I have uh, have had a, a we're, we're we're really having a great time. We've had uh, great difficulty in uh, in sobriety, and you know, if people don't have problems in sobriety, that's fine. I, I have uh, I have not found that to be particularly useful to me because I've had a lot of problems in sobriety. So I've been very attracted to people who are willing to talk about them and talk about the spiritual solution. Uh, dumping to me is expressing a problem without seeking a solution. That to me is dumping. Expressing the problem, I really need that. And at five or six years of sobriety, I realized I was terrified of my wife. That I was, you know, we had insane rules in our house when I was drinking, when we were unrecovered. Like the kids had to eat health food. So my wife would give them a healthy meal and then put them in the car with me, Dr. Death, and say, and say, hope you live. And, uh, <laughs> this is the kind of insanity we came from, you know? And the boys, you know, the boys were just nuts. They were made out of cardboard. You couldn't curse and you couldn't, eat sugar, but you can die from alcoholism. I mean, it was just... So Nancy would go over to her sponsor's house and Ruby would put him in front of the TV with a bowl of M&M's. And they loved it. They loved being at Ruby's house. Ruby's uh, husband, Milton, is 20 years sober. One day he calls the boys over for when they were little boys. And he bends down. Excuse my language. He says to the boys, Boys, your parents don't know shit. <laughs> and the kids went, Oh, thank God, we suspected, but now it's confirmed. Oh, man, this is great. And he used a four-letter word. It doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> and um, and I was still suffering from that in in the survival. My wife, I'd hear her car coming up uh, the uh, the driveway, and I'd look around at the kids watching the right thing on TV. Is the house okay? I, I was terrified of her. And and my wife and I went to therapy together, and and we worked out good things in therapy, and then we'd go home and throw a Buick at each other. And and uh, one, one more time. We weren't able to apply the psychological tools we were learning. We didn't have a moral, a spiritual application for them. And my sponsor kept suggesting to me that I pray with my wife, which I thought was embarrassing and unnecessary. Now, I will pray with a puppy-strangling felon, who I've never met before, in public. But pray with my wife, my lover, my buddy, my bride. It's just psycho. And uh, when we finally started holding hands and saying, Father, can you help us? Can you help us to stop taking things personally? Can you please help us to remember that we are we're that we're lovers, we're not adversaries. You know, if you're living with the enemy, you probably ought to move eventually. <laughs> you know? Can you help us to remember to have a sense of humor? Please help us walk towards you together. And 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 we really started coming together in a way we hadn't before. You know, I was showing people in Alcoholics Anonymous and newcomers common courtesy, love, affection, and acceptance that I wasn't even coming close to showing my wife. You know, and uh, 
we uh, we've survived that, and we're we're prospering together. And that's just what's happening in our house today. Just what's happening in our house today. If you knew, I'm sure you're just thrilled to death for us. <laughs> if you knew, I want to welcome you to AA. I want to tell you that our the good news is is our problem mainly rests in our mind because if it didn't, we wouldn't have a text that says we absolutely insist on enjoying life. There's no book about cholera that says cholera is a hoot. You'll love cholera. You'll meet other people with cholera. It's fabulous. Then you'll meet people who just caught cholera. Doesn't get any better than that. Um, and the bad news is, is our problem mainly rests in our mind. Um, some years ago, I met this drunk at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I, I got home and I called the guy, and he talked to me for an hour. I, I said, uh-huh, four times, so he'd know I wasn't dead. <laughs> and uh, he, he uh, told me that he'd been stalking several women, and he had a restraining order out against them. But it's all different now. He's two weeks sober, and it's different now. And I, at the end, of, at the end of the hour, he said to me, "I feel so alone." And I said, "What are you talking about? I hardly even know you, and I just listened to you for an hour without interrupting." Well, what do you mean? And he said to me, well, "I mean, I, I don't have a woman." And I said to him, "What exactly would you be bringing to the a relationship right now, besides stalking skills?" <laughs> What, what, are you, what are you bringing to the party exactly right now? People two weeks into remission from leukemia are not having dating problems. Alcoholics are because we trivialize our problem, because our problem mainly rests in our mind. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife Nancy was walking through our bedroom, and I was talking to this new guy, and um, she heard me saying to the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. <laughs> she stopped short. She didn't want to miss a second of this, so... <laughs> I said to the guy, look, I- I'm not telling you the aliens aren't coming. They might very well be coming. That's an outside interest. I have no opinion on that. <laughs> but here's my question. Why you? Why have they come for you? Why have they traversed the universe for your sorry ass? You're 11 days sober. You have no life. Don't you think they'll call a cop, go to a male man or something? Why you? Plus, he's sleeping with a Bible on his chest to ward them off. So they're going to traverse a galaxy, walk into his room and go, oh no, oh no, the Bible, let's go home. Uh, sometime after this, I was sharing this story at a meeting in my area, and uh, and uh, the guy who I was telling the story about walked into the meeting, and I'm watching him while I'm telling the story, and uh, while I'm telling the story, he went like this, <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> and so the horrible memory slid into his head. If you're new here, I want to urge you as, as strongly as I possibly can to take this thing as seriously as you possibly can and go out there and have the time of your life. If the aliens are coming for you, welcome to AA. Welcome home. Thanks so much for having me, folks.